Dotnet Rocks episode 833 with guests Scott Allen, Kate Gregory, Michelle LaRue Bustamante, and Woody Pewitt. Recorded live Thursday, December 13th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. People drank their welcome juice. <laughs> hey, we're at Dev Intersection in Las Vegas at the end of the .NET Rocks road trip. Woohoo! And it's been a long three months. All right, pass that Crown Royal down here, please. Oh my! my. That, that is Canadian whiskey. Thanks very much. So is that for Canadians dibs. only? <laughs> <laughs> we are here at Dev Intersection, a new conference that we're all a part of in Las Vegas with a great crowd that came out to see us. And uh, we have an esteemed panel here that we're going to be talking to. But before we talk to them, we have a little business to do, do we not? We do indeed. What are we starting with? Uh, well, it's a little thing we call Better Know Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? I went spelunking on CodePlex again, and I found a great little project called Sheet Engine. Sheet Engine? Sheet Engine. What's a Sheet Engine? Isn't it funny? Hmm. You have the possibilities that it could be. If it weren't, an isometric HTML5 JavaScript display engine. It's an HTML5 canvas-based JavaScript display engine for rendering isometric scenes built up of sheets. Rather than panels? Rather than panels. Or canvases? Exactly. Sheets. Sheets. Okay, now I get it. So you have Z-ordering and shadows with adjustable light source, sheet mm. intersections, custom textures, transparent regions, custom view transformations in JavaScript. What? Yes. That's awesome. It's an isometric HTML5 JavaScript display engine. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Sheetengine.codeplex.com. Know it, learn it, love it. I love it. Who's talking to us, Richard Campbell? I grabbed a comment off the latest show. This is show 827, the one we did with Matt Nunn. Yeah. When we were in Bentonville, Arkansas, yep. on the road trip, you recall. And we were talking about modern apps, modern app lifecycle. And you remember we had a whole part where we talked about the humanitarian toolbox. That's right. And Michael Perry, who's been a regular listener of the show for a long time, we've gotten a few emails from him, but I've never sent him a mug, said oh. this. Uh, Matt mentioned that the top story on the charity backlog was solving the occasionally connected problem, which we know is a huge issue because during a disaster, right. odds are there's not a lot of connectivity or it's really unstable. You really have to code uh, mobile apps for disconnected first. Yes, be able to survive function like that. Uh, Michael goes on to say, uh, I would encourage him to check out Correspondence. This is an open source library that stores data on the local device and in the cloud. While offline, the user can interact with the local data and even make changes. These changes are queued up for delivery the next time a connection is available. It pushes updates to other devices and other users, and it refreshes the UI in real time so users don't have to hit the refresh button. Brilliant. That's almost the, precisely what we were That's talking exactly about. That's exactly what we were talking about. We currently have bindings for Windows Phone, Windows 8, Silverlight, WPF, and Android. Bindings for iOS and JavaScript are on the roadmap. Matt can find more information at correspondencecloud.com. If you put us in touch with him, I'll be glad to give him a demo, and I'd love to donate some development time and servers in instances to the cause. That's so cool, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Michael, you rock. We need to give him two mugs. Two and mugs. A, hoodie. a mug and a hoodie. Yeah. So a mug and a hoodie is on its way to you, and if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 300 uh, courses authored by industry experts, MVPs, and people such as appear on this show. They produce uh, 10 to 12 new courses a month, and topics range from Java to JavaScript, HTML5, anything on the .NET stack, just about everything you can think of. It's all there. And uh, subscriptions start at $29 a month. Check it out, Pluralsight.com. And with that, 
a big round of applause for our panel, which I'm going to let them introduce themselves individually, but thank them for being here. Miss Michelle, how are you? Fine, thanks for asking. And uh, who are you and what do you do? Like we need to know. My name is Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Say that three times fast. Good luck. Um, so I'm a, well, I guess I'm a latent entrepreneur. I have a new Azure startup called Snapboard, and uh, I'm co-founder of that. And then I'm also, um, I've been an architect consultant for many, many years. I have a new consulting business with Brian Noyes and uh, Zoyner Tejada called Alliance, And uh, that's what I do. All right. Mr. Woody. I'm Woody Pewitt. I work for uh, Telerik, telling the world about Icinium, our mobile development environment. Isn't that a hotel in Norway? Or <laughs> <laughs> Iceland? I've, I've never been to it. I'll have to trust you. It's cold there. <laughs> That's hints. Yeah. Miss Gregory. Hello. Uh, I'm Kate Gregory. I have been using C++ since before Microsoft had a C++ compiler. Uh, it's not the only thing I do. I have a, a consulting firm. We do some boutique development for people, and we help people be better developers. .NET, and yes, lots of C++. Still. Still. <laughs> and Mr. Scott Allen. Hi, Carl. My name's Scott Allen. I run a consulting company, OG-Code. I've occasionally authored some Pluralsight videos, and I'm here to represent web developers. You'll notice I've, I've put together a bit of a... Two things you'll notice about this panel. First, not a Miguel Castro in sight. Oh. <laughs> but he's right there. He's right there, and I'm sure he'll ask, you know. It, Maybe time for an edit point. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought we had a really, I mean, this was a very, uh, let's say, not aggressive set of personalities. So a balanced set of personalities, some nice people, but all with different specialties, <laughs> right? Someone focused on startups, someone focused on mobile, someone focused on clients, someone focused on web. Right. Because I really want to dig into. We've got a crazy year coming up. Microsoft shipped everything under the sun. Yeah. And now we've got to figure out what to do with it this next year. This is sort of the essence of what Dev Intersection was all about. It's six weeks after build, mm -hmm. we get a chance to reflect. You know, our content is current. Our thinking is forward thinking. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're past the hype stage. So where are we going? It's an open-ended question. I guess we should ask you to answer in terms of your own expertise. So... Where do you see your technology leading you in the next year, Michelle? Sure. Um, I, obviously, that's uh, oftentimes in the eye of the beholder because of what you focus on. So um, my skew is going to be slanted towards, you know, what are we doing with cloud and how is that helping people? So I do spend a lot of time in the startup space, not only with my own, but also helping other people with their startups because it's a passion of mine. And um, I think that it's just never been a good, a better time to push things to the cloud and try something new and, and try to, to take an idea that you have and, and build a business around it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's totally economical to do it. People have great ideas. And, you know, the only way to know if you could turn that into a business is to try. The so, economical thing is really taken center stage. That is lately. it. Right there. The cost right of there. entry has never been lower. Never been lower and never been easier. And also, it's not just about how much it costs to host. It's how easy it is to take what you're building, if you are a developer and a technical person, and push it out there and manage that process and the lack of need for an IT person to help you with that process. Because mm -hmm. that's, you know, no offense to IT people, Richard. I mean, you're awesome. <laughs> but, like, I can't afford you, right? So, well, you right? Certainly we, can. we have issues there. And then... And then another interesting thing, too, is, you know, I've, I've actually talked to some people lately, not only here, but before the conference, um, who are not technical people mm -hmm. who want to start businesses, and they need to know, how can I get something off the ground right. easily? And they do need to find, obviously, a technical person. But because it's such a vibrant community, startups, you know, you could probably find someone that has skills and some spare cycles that would, you know, contribute to your idea, work with you as a partner. And so you can be the idea person. You know, you share your equity with somebody and you say, help me build this thing. Let's go, right? And it's just an exciting time. I see a lot of people really digging into that. I, it's, it's a fun time. So 2013 is going to be a big year for entrepreneurs. I think so, because even look at Lean Startup and how that has taken off. Mm -hmm. It's been here for years, right. people talking about Lean Startup, but it has never been more 
in your face than it is today. And another thing I've noticed is just in talking to people about this topic, you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about it, but I just, I get so much feedback from people every time I have these conversations and it just shows how hungry people are for like doing something new and trying something on their own. And it's almost like being an entrepreneur is the new safe. Hmm. It's no longer a risk, right? you know? Because you don't have to lay out hundreds of thousands right. of dollars in infrastructure just to get hello world. Right. Yep. Woody, what do you, where do you see 2013 carrying you? Um, you know, actually, there's a lot of tie-in. I mean, the cloud is a, is a great resource for anything. I'm very focused, obviously, on uh, mobile realms of development. Um, but being able to do very unusual and disconnected scenarios and relying on the cloud to get a lot of that done. I mean, you can take a look at the way even Icenium was written. You know, we do compiling up in the cloud. Sure. You know? I mean, we really, you know, see that this overall, uh, you know, if you will, range of computing power doing the right thing at the right place at the right time. You know, obviously, I'm a rich client person overall, mm -hmm. and so getting richer on the device is better. It does seem like the complexities on the device now, too. In some ways, backends have never been cleaner and simpler than they've been right now. Right. Can we can we back up just a bit and give us the elevator speech on Icinium? Sure. So Icinium is uh, Telerik's new product uh, around doing. Um, mobile development for iOS and Android platforms specifically. We'll be bringing other platforms along over time. But it's a lightweight IDE where we actually, up in our cloud infrastructure, have, you know, Xcode and uh, Java and all the compilers and everything. So you don't do any sort of compiling on your local system. You just write HTML and JavaScript. You send it up to our infrastructure. It gets built. And it's a very iterative process to where you have a full development life cycle there. It's not a broken, fragmented experience. It's a very clean. Yeah. And there's some Adobe in the back end there somewhere, I think. It's yeah, yeah. We, we use PhoneGap or, um, you know, Apache Cordova is the open source name of the project right. uh, to, to actually build into a standalone binary that you can deploy. And you're adding lifecycle management and other value to it. Exactly. It's its full developer lifecycle uh, set of tools. Yeah. Fantastic. Kate, where do you see yourself going? In I've been a client developer for a long time. My firm's done a few web projects and they've been fine, but we've been more enjoying writing client. What I see happening is a redefinition of what client is. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a client, a customer who's had a, an app, the kind of app that people come in in the morning, take off their coat, turn on the computer, open this app, and eight hours later they close it and put their coat on and go home. Mm -hmm. And a couple years ago they wanted to make some like satellite functionality on tablets and netbooks and whatnot, and it just never got off the ground because the customers would have had to buy the hardware for their for their people that were driving around in cars. So they shelved that. Well, now everybody has something that can run a client. They have a phone or a tablet or something, and suddenly that's like the super top priority. We have to write this uh, mobile check anything for the people who are in their cars. Unfortunately, it gets a little harder because instead of just writing a Windows app and buying them all netbooks, they have to write for three or four kinds of phones and for at least two kinds of tablets. Mm -hmm. But those are all client apps, and as long as we keep the back end consistent, we just have to open our, our kind of minds and hearts to more possibilities of what constitutes a client these days. Heterogeneous world. Mm -hmm. So do you see yourself writing more mobile apps in the future? So this, this particular customer of mine had himself two developers and a QA, and he just added two mobile developers and a project manager. So, yeah, there's yeah. going to be a lot of them being written. It is starting to feel like 2013 is going to be the year that you better have a mobile strategy. Like, it's not optional anymore. Not optional. I'm, I'm more concerned with how well our websites render on a phone now yeah. than on a desktop machine. Yeah, and if you just cling to Windows and say there's Windows and web, you're missing a really important part of the universe. Yeah, for sure. Scott, I said web. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of good ideas to think about because uh, web development in 2013, there's a lot of things that Michelle and Woody both talked about, that, mm -hmm. and Kate too, that um, influence web development. I see a lot of clients now that take the approach of mobile-first web development. So we're going to build a new web application. We're going to make sure that it looks good on these three devices first, 
And if it looks good on other devices, that's good. If it looks good on the desktop, that's okay too. But we're, we understand that more than 50% of our traffic to the website will probably be mobile. tablets and mobile phones. And HTML5 is baked now, so it's it going to work everywhere just <laughs> fine, right? Yeah. Well, not exactly. You know, another trend is more JavaScript frameworks to sort of smooth over HTML5. Actually, less jQuery and more of other types of frameworks. I'm starting to feel overwhelmed at the sheer number of JavaScript libraries out there. There's a new one every day. But yeah. they're all awesome, though. That's the thing. It's, like, <clears throat> it's going to take a while for all this to shake out. And, yeah. um, there's always what the cool kids are using, you know? Right. I mean, there's, right. there's certain types of tools that sort of stand out, and, yeah. and it depends on the type of app you're building. You know, if you, if you like the look of things like Pinterest, you're using masonry to automatically lay out stuff, right? And um, you kind of get to know them by spending time in the space looking at other people's sites too, like how are they building it, and, and you learn about those different so libraries. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at telerik.com slash metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Scott, what uh, libraries are in your JavaScript toolkit these days? Oh, I like things like Knockout and Angular. Um, Modernizer, obviously, is almost a must-have if you're trying to make sure you reach as many devices as possible and make sure it looks reasonably good. Um, but also front-end toolkits, so things like Bootstrap which is ostensibly uh, a CSS framework. And if you haven't looked at a CSS framework before, then 2013 would be a good time to start looking at CSS frameworks that give you some things out of the box and so if uh, I'm responsive not, design, for instance. If I'm not crazy about CSS in the first place, is a CSS framework going to make it an easier or a more difficult time for me? Actually, I, I think so, because over the years I've seen a lot of uh, developers who are very good at C Sharp, very good at JavaScript, but they just don't. Uh, want to participate with CSS and yeah, play nice I'm with it. Yeah, I'm one of those guys. Uh, and you bring down something like Bootstrap. It's very well designed. It's very well factored. You just learn a couple basic things about it, how how to work things, and and you have nice layouts and nice colors and all of that out of the box. So it takes sort of the complexity of CSS. It does syntax away, maybe. And if nothing else, it'll show you how to design a good CSS framework, a good cool. a good style sheet. Awesome. It, it, that's just a templating approach, and I feel like the, the whole XAML story now, especially in Windows 8, is, is all about understanding the templates. Certainly, this is <laughs> Carl's area. But mm. Well, I, I, I just want to know, has XAML influenced web and JavaScript development? Well, I, I definitely say there's a shift to declarative programming within the HTML5 world with JavaScript. So, you, in fact, you look at some JavaScript frameworks today, it used to be that if you wanted to put up a calendar widget or some sort of date picker widget, you'd have to select the element and do dot date picker. Whereas today, it's very declarative. You walk up to an input or a div and you put data dash date picker equals true, and you don't have to write any JavaScript code. Hmm. So I would say, you know, that's kind of XAML-like in a way. It is very XAML-like. Well, and all these... These wrappers over top of JavaScript, the coffee scripts and the type scripts mm -hmm. of the world. So go, don't write the JavaScript yourself. That's machine code, Scott Hanselman told me. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. You know what's interesting is um, I think two of the smartest people in the world in software development are uh, Anders, father of C Sharp, yep. and, uh, and I, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but Gilad Braca, who works for Google now, who's working on Dart. So both of these are trying to build an alternative to JavaScript to write, write, let you write something in a language that's not JavaScript but compile down to JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And this just, we haven't been able to kill JavaScript for decades now. So it's just going to be interesting to see it if anyone makes any headway. It getting stronger. Headline. Whatever we're trying to do to it, to kill it, it's going the wrong way. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, for folks who haven't heard anything about Dart, can you talk a little bit about it? Well, I don't know much about it, but it's basically Google has come out, uh, similar to Microsoft with their TypeScript offering, and said, we don't believe that you can build large enterprise applications using JavaScript. We just don't, we think there's, you spend so much time in JavaScript solving problems that aren't business related that we really need to write in a different language. So, uh, Dart is very heavily influenced by Java. It's, uh, object oriented, and it would be something that you write and compile into JavaScript. Mm -hmm. 
<coughs> TypeScript, on the other hand, is JavaScript, but it has annotations in it yeah. to, to make it strongly typed, whereas Dart is still optionally typed. Do you, yeah. do you find a lot of uh, .NET programmers who were, or C-sharp programmers who were not so quick to embrace JavaScript, easing into it with TypeScript, or does um, that make it even more complex for them? Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. TypeScript's still pretty new, but I have seen a lot of .NET developers jump right on that bandwagon pretty quick because they like to know, they like types, they yeah, like strong sure. typing. Yeah. yeah. The compiler is your friend. The compiler can can save you sometimes, yeah. <laughs> and certainly there's a lot of silly errors that you can come up with in JavaScript, just typographical errors that, that, that can save you some time. You know, I think it's interesting, though, that you, Carl, you brought up trying to, you know, make sense of CSS as a person that doesn't particularly like it. Yeah. or And I, I almost feel like if you're going to build a real app with a real experience, we're in an age right now where, you know, we really have a clear separation and discipline separation of the back end and the front end. And we can no longer know all the technologies, as we know, right, this whole avalanche that is upon us, right? Um, and so you need specialization to do a really, really good job. And that includes the different platforms, you know, unless we can use tools like Asinium, obviously, to help us build those experiences without having to know how to build for every single targeted platform. And it'll be really interesting to see where those shake out so that you can use, you know, your skill in design, because that's really what it is. You have to have somebody who's good at design, and then you have to have the person that knows how to code design, and then you have to have the person that knows how to connect front to back, which is kind of like that architecture perspective and security and exceptions, and connect those things and build the back end, right? And if you at least have those three, then you've kind of covered end-to-end -end how to build something. And I don't know what I would do with our startup if we didn't have an awesome designer. Like, we, yeah. we'd have an okay interface, but it would never reach the place where it needs to go, I don't think, you know? Where, does, where do we find these people? <laughs> That's a good question, right? I mean, I mean you have designers, industrial designers who come out of school. You know, my daughter's going into industrial design. Mm -hmm. But how much software... Uh, do these people understand? But I'm talking UI design, right? This like the I'm skill to do image. Yeah. yeah. Like how much how yeah. much of that applies? How much mm -hmm. of an industrial design degree applies to software? I mean, you really have to specialize mm -hmm. as a designer in software. And you have to design. have a skill in it, right? Like that's yeah. that's that's a talent. You don't yeah. learn that. I mean, I could go to school for 25 more years, and I will never ever be able to do a nice looking you know graphical interface because I suck. And I've accepted that. <laughs> So, like, there are people that are just good at that. Like, people can sing and not, and I can't sing either. So, I'm missing all kinds of skills, I guess. But I just stay on the back end, and then I'm happy. <laughs> I didn't even have that crown royal. Here we go. <laughs> I think it affects the Canadians more than it affects <laughs> I just had to smell it. That was That's all it took. <laughs> you know, Woody, uh, what you're trying to do around the Asidium is kind of interesting because... The iOS and Android, while similar UIs, are not the same UI. And it's always been a concern of mine when we try and do this sort of cross-platform building thing that we're trying to make one look fits all. Right. I mean, and that, that's the biggest challenge that you really face um, when you want to try and give your end users an application that they're going to really adopt. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't make them feel comfortable like this is a normal thing, and you know, there's really two approaches, right? There's the Facebook approach of we are going to always have a consistent Facebookish feel everywhere you go. Right. And please wait, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> or there's the, you know, you make it look appropriate for the different platforms. Mm -hmm. And we definitely, you know, think that making it appropriate for the platform is probably where most people want to go. And does Kendo UI help with that? Yes. Kendo actually does a great job. There are some other toolkits, but when you look at the... Uh, um, the overall life cycle of, of doing the development you get, you know, between the data widgets and the Kendo rendering capabilities, you know, that, that really solves the problem for, um, really these two platforms. And it, they actually cover more platforms than we cover, uh, from an Icenium perspective. So it can really even help on just a mobile web scenario as well. Hmm. See, in the end, under the hood, it's all HTML5. It's all HTML5. Right. Yeah. I like to think of PhoneGap as being, you know, like like a, a VB web browser control in a, in a form. You know, it sort of is that same native shim to a, to a web browser. Yeah, it's um, 
when you really get into Cordova and, and how it's, you know, working under the hood, I mean, it's really just a set of APIs, right, that are exposed at the JavaScript level, and then everything else is different below that um, when you're talking about that shim side of it. And it, so it's just a matter of, hey, if, if they've got a embeddable browser, then PhoneGap should be able to be, you know, operating on that level. Hey, Kate, why does anybody care about C++ anymore? <laughs> <laughs> It's my own personal charisma, Richard. That's all there is to it. <laughs> you, you're a pure force of will. That's right. Keeping it alive. Single-handedly kept it no. alive, and then it came back. So here's the deal. Um, I thought for a long time that I was like the last C++ developer. And I used to say, you know, when I'm done, I need to turn the lights out. And then <laughs> <laughs> I discovered 20-year-olds learning C++ as their first programming language and cheerfully working away in it and and uh, doing great work. They don't come to conferences, so I wasn't meeting them, but they're totally out there. They're, sorry, they're writing code. And, and so that was a big surprise to me. That was about two years ago. And now we have this change in the language uh, because unlike some of the other languages we've been kicking around today, uh, C++ is a standardized language. It has a standards committee. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, committees are slow, you know. Um, <laughs> Just so, ask the HTML guys. <laughs> so this was C plus plus zero X. It was going to get done sometime, zero something, right? Zero five, zero six. We weren't sure, so naturally it became eleven. That's <laughs> how committees work. But it's like a whole new language. And so whatever people tell me what they don't like about C plus plus, I'm like, yeah, I don't like that either. I don't. We don't do that anymore. You know, so uh, we have auto, which is just exactly like C-sharp's var. We have a decent string class, so everything you ever memorized about car stars, you can forget because nobody uses them anymore. And uh, we don't have to delete stuff. We can do it up and ignore it, too, because we have a really uh, good set of smart pointers uh, that do lifetime management in a deterministic way. And so now when I write up a slide full of C++11 code and I show it to people, they think it's C-sharp. Because it, you know, apart from saying auto instead of R, it looks like C sharp. So the, oh, it's so hard to type thing falls away. And then you're left with what it's good for, which is, you know, performance, uh, portability across a variety of platforms. If your world consists of more than just Windows, then you really like C. And, uh, for many people, there's a lot of productivity because it's a language that they know and that they can get stuff done in real fast. So all the stuff I blocked out. You can, I can forget. leave it blocked out. Leave yeah, it, leave it blocked, blocked out. That's cool. Let's stir compare style do not I thought I'd back. let something slip through the cracks uh -uh. there. <laughs> we all block that okay. out now. Yeah, totally. It's <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, Richard, guess what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away a uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. Ooh. To your, Normally, we give them away to a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Are you all members of the fan club? Yeah. <laughs> See? It all works out. Yeah, we so have we thousands just... of members. It turns out that I'm going to pick a name from the till of those who are here. So one lucky person in the audience today, right now, is going to win the Teller DevCraft Complete Collection. And the winner and still champion is Brad Inager. Where's Brad? Are you there? <laughs> got to be here to win, Brad. Yeah, got to be here to win, Brad. Mm. Oh, man. No, it's not integer. That's an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> not integer. It's probably... Yeah. All right. The real winner here, number two, Chris Ellenwood. Where's Chris? He's here. Congratulations, right. Chris. Chris, we're going to actually send it to you, so I uh, don't have it right here, but I have your email address. <laughs> send it away. It's this in the way. mail, my friend. Yeah, we'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and enroll for the fan club, and every show we give away something. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection every show right now. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology, mm -hmm. and we just gave that away so last month so do it now all right i'm going to jump back at kate here because uh i figured that there were a lot of c plus plus you know dark developers out there and that they were going to jump all over this new capability in windows 8 we'd see a lot of c plus plus apps showing up in the app store but it just hasn't materialized yet it looks like the bulk of the apps in the app store at this point are all c sharp xaml it really does. Um, there's no reason why you can't write that app in VB in XAML or C++ in XAML, but 
I think some of it has to do with previous exposure to the MVVM pattern. Right. Um, if you already know that, you're like, woohoo, I love it. If you don't already know that, then step one is to learn that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's no particular important differences between the languages in terms of how you cope with the asynchronicity or whatever. Right. But the familiarity is definitely, you see a preponderance of C++ stuff. I, I just want to believe that stuff. the C++ developer has an advantage developing a Windows 8 because they have a, in the end, Windows 8 is built with C++. So you ought to be closer to the metal or more access to more things or at least a one less layer of abstraction. Well, we, we go through the same layer of abstraction that we have that WinRT, you know, projection. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I think, do get better perf. We don't have to load up a, a runtime. And we can call into some libraries that we already have. And some people have had some libraries for 20 years. So in terms of your ability to accumulate legacy um, in the sense of a diamond necklace from your aunt legacy, um, <laughs> something really valuable that's been handed down from developer to developer, you know, that opportunity should be really p- uh, powerful for C++ people. And I think that as people... What I saw in the first wave of Windows 8 apps was new ideas, like, hey, we could make a thing where it splats a pie on your face. And what I'm starting to see now is more people taking their existing stuff and saying, I need to make it available on that platform too. And when that happens, I think they'll try to use whatever language they wrote their existing stuff in. And that's when I think you'll start to see uh, things go forward. You know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the whole point of C was that it was cross-platform. Points yes. of C. That nice. You like that? I like that. Good with that. Uh, <laughs> that we would be able to compile it on each one of these platforms. And then yes. it just seemed like that went away. And it hasn't mattered all that much because, you know, the world's been pretty homogeneous, but it isn't now. Right. And that cross-platform is, is very, very important to C++ people. Mm-hmm. Um, they get mad when people make their own variants Microsoft loves to make, like here's a special flavor of C++. And then people are like, that's not real C++. Um, I'll Post take it. script the new C++? Well, <laughs> you know, you need stuff that runs on everywhere. You do. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe JavaScript can be reviled for being complicated too, you know, but um, it has, that's a huge benefit and we all have to accept that the world is not just uh, the machine that's just like the one on your desk and you don't get to say it works on my machine anymore. So should people learn C++? You know, it wouldn't take you long because you don't have to learn all the, the stuff that you remember from college that was hard. You're avoiding the question. Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> I tell you what, watch my C++ fundamentals course on double speed. It won't take you long and then you'll know C++. C++ programmers are well paid too, aren't they? Most because there's less in, uh, there's more less of them. And there's less of them. Yes. Yep. And, and interestingly... It's the new COBOL. Oh, don't say that. Oh. Just kidding. Oh. I love you. I I liked you, Michelle. Actually, a few years ago, I thought we were the new Fox Pro, you know? <laughs> but we've escaped that But now you're just Foxy. Fate. Yeah, we've escaped yeah. that fate, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, it couldn't hurt to learn it. It would open up some doors, make some No, but like, that's what I'm really genuinely yeah. curious about, right? Like, if what would be the motivation? Like, the motivation to learn it be, from yeah. scratch? Because if you already know it, you have a place to go and do things. Yeah. So if you don't know it, what would be the reason? I'm just curious. The reason know, would be would... so that you could run your co- the same library of code on more platforms. You say, I'm going to write this library, and then I'm going to call it from all these different UIs on all these different platforms. There's a really good chance that that library will just be able to you know, literally be copied to that platform and work there. Okay. And then there's AMP. And then there's AMP, C++ AMP. If you don't mind speeding up your app by a factor of 50 to 100, mm-hmm. not percent, times. A lot of people are okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you, you're getting to the brass tacks there, which is there are certain things available in the C++ world that still really aren't available anywhere else. Yeah. Yes. Now it one may of them be, is speed. It may be enough to know a C++ developer who could write you a library that you could call from your other languages. That, that could also work. <laughs> <laughs> Just make friends. That's all you have to do. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think... Is, has the, how do you guys feel about the cloud just sort of overwhelming any conversation of running your own servers anymore? What do you mean? How do you feel about that? Yeah, is, is that the reality for you? I mean, certainly it's reality for you, Michelle. With the, with Isn't my reality everybody's reality? Uh, I, maybe another way to say that is are there any situations in which, uh, what are the situations in which we need to have things on site? Hmm. Well, I mean, we face it already with um, a lot of customers not able to be able to put their code up in our repository for regulatory reasons, as yeah. well as, you know, uh, they're then also 
potential IP, you know, intellectual property worries. Right. I mean, I think most of those worries have been addressed by the cloud environments nowadays, but still people just have a mindset that, you know, we have to be on-prem because of these things. Is it in the service level agreement of, say, an Azure service that Microsoft does not go through and look at your data and mine it and all of that stuff? I, I absolutely know it's there for AWS. I'm sure it's yeah. probably there for Microsoft as well. Yeah. Um, but, and so, and, and anybody running a cloud needs to be able to show that they have the processes that would keep them out of it. I yeah. mean, uh, well, and there's regional dependencies, and some countries just plain don't allow you to put certain types of data in yeah. the cloud at all or to leave even the region that they're in. So they can't go to the cloud by definition because that would mean they'd have to control where it goes on the network, right, where it bounces, and it's it's an issue. Um, Last time we were on a panel talking about the cloud, uh, Michelle, we were talking about service-level agreements and how, you know, in the... In the, in the 2000 range, when everything was DNA at Microsoft, you know, we were talking about five nines of reliability, you know, and when you put the internet in there, you know, your five nines go out the door. So if your app needs to be up 24 seven all the time, you know, is that just something that would take you away from the cloud or are there new strategies or are they, are they actually getting better about uptime? What's the it, it has not as much to do with where it's hosted. I mean, whether I host it on right. premise in my own network or whether I host it in the cloud or I have my own private cloud, it's still the same issues that would lead to less down, less uptime. Right. And usually it's around redundancy, recoverability, um, making sure that you have backups of data, making right. sure that you're being notified when something's down or there are automatic failover, you know, mechanisms in place or, uh, having regional dupli you know, duplication. So it all depends. You want to spend more money on redundant servers in two areas of the world yeah. so that if one goes down because of a disaster, you can go over here, then you have to pay for that. So it's a trade-off of costs versus reliability and security and all of those things that we think about and worry about. Um, so you can achieve, you know, five nines, which is five minutes downtime a year, if you never have to take the database down cold, right? Yeah. Right. But as soon as you have to do any sort of cold... But it's not like any yeah. of the cloud providers are offering that. Right. Here's, I can tell, the only service level agreement I can get out of any of them is, hey, we'll pay you back some of the money you paid us mm -hmm. if we're offered. No, they're days. not going to give you compensating measures. No. You know, that's that's not something that any cloud vendor is probably going to do for you because they can't. They could go out of business if you sued them for that. Um, but but I think it's it's not also their fault necessarily if the data isn't properly available because you have to have copy of your data if you care about it that much. You can't say just because Azure has triple replication that you shouldn't care about that data enough to have another copy somewhere else. Because what if there is a disaster? Mm -hmm. You know, you you simply can't do that. You you have to own it if it's that important. Then there's the internet in general, which just right. goes up and down like the wind. Mm -hmm. So One advantage I find of the cloud, though, is the publicity and transparency about it. So if I have an on-premise server and it goes down because, I don't know, it catches fire, then I have to tell people, and they, they think I'm an idiot because I let my server catch fire. <laughs> um, but, but if I'm using a public service and, you know, this week, you know, the world was going to grind to a halt because Google Docs was down for however long it was down for. Oh, phew. I thought it was the whole Mayan calendar yeah, thing. The, no. <laughs> yeah, the, Google Docs is down. The Mayans were right. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> How did they know? <laughs> but you know what? Like, everybody knew. So if that, if that had knocked you offline as a company and you were telling your customers, they'd be all like, oh, yeah, we feel your pain. It's not your fault. And so if you're, if you're using AWS and it happens to go down for 10 minutes a year, or if you're using Azure and it goes down for 7 minutes a year, it was in the news, right? So you have your built-in excuse. So where, yeah, as if yeah, you're you really can't get a subscription for a reasonable excuse to be down. Yeah. Except that, except, <laughs> except that they could also complain that you chose the wrong vendor. Right. Yeah. So you gotta be careful about that one because, you know, someone could say, hey, Azure was down, why weren't you on AWS instead? Or but if yeah. they all have equal, equal opportunity failures in yes. the past that you can point to, then you can say, well, you know, they were down. But if you chose, uh, you know, Joe's uh, cloud hosting and small engine repair, and he was down a little more often. <laughs> he wouldn't be in the news, though. <laughs> he used to have another shop, Joe's Discount Shark Repellent. <laughs> Surfing the web?
Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of actor reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. I got a question for Scott. Do you find that there are any um, uh, tools or technologies or even architectures or patterns that don't quite seem baked yet? That, uh, that you're waiting for the next iteration or oh, for the next big discovery. Sure. There's, I mean, there's a whole host of things going on in the client now that I think, uh, well, basically what we're doing on the client now, if you're trying to build like a single page application, hopefully in five, 10, 15 years, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hopefully, hopefully it's not that long. Hopefully that's going to be a complete, just a completely different scenario. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it because, um, of things like, uh, change notification. Right. How do I know when a JavaScript op property changed? Well, I have to just completely turn it into a function and do all sorts of weird things. And hopefully things like that will go away either through using an alternative language, perhaps, or, um, the next version of JavaScript. Yeah, so you think JavaScript has some catch-up to do in terms of... Uh, yeah, and I, I just think a lot of these frameworks that people look at today, like Knockout, Backbone, Spine, Angular, there's dozens of them, there's probably a new one since we started this panel, Right. they're, they're all going to either be gone or look revolutionarily different in, in yeah. a few years. Yeah, I hope it doesn't take that long. So you, <laughs> it's sort of, uh, what you're saying is sort of kludgy. Yeah, I think we're in a, a kludge period right now, feeling things out and um, hoping things get better next year all the time. Well, it does feel like, I mean, the nice thing if you're dealing with smartphones is that they're all HTML5 compatible. <clears throat> the, the, the major phones are all pretty much up to date. The major OSs are up to date. People are using it. Yeah. Like, fewer and fewer archaic <clears throat> browsers out there. And, and that, a lot of this stuff seems to be protecting you from archaic browsers. And, and that goes back to the people I know now that just want to start with a mobile-first development strategy. Yeah. We're, not gonna, we're not really going to worry about IE8 and previous. We're, we're just going to target the latest HTML5 standards and, right. and hope that it would still function on IE6 if someone comes. But we're not going to really worry about those older browsers. And that means, too, that then we can use things like um, hover effects and CSS and not write JavaScript to do that. Uh, all sorts of benefits fall out of that. You, you write less code, basically. Yeah, well, I guess if you're, you know, you're one of those people who's running IE6 and you want to go to the coolest <laughs> and newest websites, after a yes. few times getting the error message, you need to upgrade your browser, yeah. you might actually... Eventually, you'll browser. have to upgrade your pirated version of XP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or install Chrome. <laughs> it's just over. Oh, but guys, I think we need some last words. Final thoughts on 2013 wishes, perhaps, maybe what you what you hope will happen or hope to see, Michelle. Wishes. Yeah. Well, your, what's your wish list for 2013? First thing, are things just too awesome to comprehend right now? No, I mean, I guess what I would wish for is that um, we would find better support for HTML5 across all of the browsers so that I could deploy applications that could reach people and not have to deal with all of the different user agent versions and so on, because I'm trying to build rich experiences and I want them to work everywhere. Um, I love that there's tools that we can use to try and build for all the apps, all the app platforms, I mean. Um, but that doesn't take away the fact that we still have to face browser, right? Because people are still going to potentially browse to the app as well. So there's just a lot to get done, and I want that to get easier for selfish reasons, of course. Mm. Um, you know, I think we're, um, we're pretty buttoned up on the server side, you know, and, and in terms of cloud offerings. I would just say, you know, surfacing more ways to automatically monitor and surface statistics and, and things about my site, you know, that type of stuff mm. would be really helpful because, you know, the IT aspects are really something that you can commoditize. And I think that right now we've got a lot of great things in Azure for, you know, managing diagnostics and, and performance counters, but it could be better, right? Like I could get more reports without having to fight for it, without having to write 
you know, code in front of an instrumentation like UI, like Gecko Board or something. You know, I, I would like it to be a bit more like, hey, it's just here, you know? More DevOps. Because, because exactly, because I think that that's really where it's at right now in terms of trying to reach the greater community and enable them to build stuff in the cloud. Um, and I think Azure is really well positioned for creating stuff that make it easier for devs and people that are not IT-centric to get stuff out there in more economical way, and, and that's going to promote adoption across Azure in general and across people that want to build stuff, right? Like, it's just, it's a great opportunity, so, yeah. Woody. Well, besides the normal world <laughs> peace and all that business, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the exact same way. It's for, for me, the most painful thing is dealing with um, people coming into JavaScript and the flexibility of that and the downright crappy stuff that people can do very easily. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's tooling, um, you know, sending, trying to figure out a, a great way to get people, you know, Roadmapped into what are the best practices, right? And so, you know, we've talked about the, you know, different generators and things like that. Having something like that become like a clear leader. And you and just want one browser to dominate them? Is, are we, would we be better off? Isn't Chrome already there? No, nice. no I'm sorry. Yeah. Did I say that? No. Um, <laughs> it's, Webkit. it really is. Um, <laughs> if, if HTML5 promise holds up, which I think it has a great chance to, then that should solve the problem. Right? But it does seem like the, the browser makers are pushing in different directions on HTML5. <clears throat> There's new stuff being pressed in to be ratified all over, and everybody's doing it differently. That goes back to your world peace thing. Yes, yes. It's, Can we all we just all get, get along? along. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I... All I can say is there is a fairly safe, narrow set of HTML5 out there right now. Mm -hmm. And as developers, I think we just need to say, you know, forget you. We're going to stay here in the safe zone. And if, if the browser vendors start wandering off, well, just that feature may not get a lot of utilization. You know? yeah. right. so. Nobody uses it. It doesn't matter. Right. Well, the basics are covered. Right. That's what we're really trying to say. Okay, Gregory, what's your wish list? I think from the client development point of view, I'd really like to see this be the death knell year for the monolithic application, you know, the, the 400,000 lines of code that makes one EXE. Because, right. you know, where the business opportunity is, is if you can pull out that into a back end that a bunch of different UIs can talk to, a library, a service, whatever, um, you, you get to be more agile, you get to release more often, you get to make more people happy. And uh, there, there's still a lot of people out there who are clinging to those monolithic apps. As that, I think the, those days are completely behind us. Yeah. You do not need to see 20,000 <laughs> records in a grid. Exactly. <laughs> All that kind of thing. And, and, and uh, well, it's ease of deployment, right? Yeah. I, just, I just email you the EXE and we're good to go. Yeah. Like, no, that's, no, no, that's no. not how the world works anymore. So. And it has felt like one of the reasons we stuck with the monolithic app model is that deployment was so painful. Yeah. And yeah. deployment does still hurt, like no question. But the benefit of figuring out how to put those moving parts together, and then you say, well, my Windows app goes up to the mothership to get what it needs, and it doesn't do a whole lot of processing. Golly, that's going to make my iPhone app easier to write because it can just go to the mothership and get what it needs. And that's going to make my tablet app and so forth and so on because all the heavy lifting's on the server. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, or right. even my suite of Windows apps. Exactly. Compared to one big model. Right. One for the manager, yeah. one for the data entry person, one for the person who's driving around in their car. Right. Absolutely. And so it brings up business opportunities that weren't there when you just thought of yourself as a desktop app and as one single giant DXE. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope to see training not a requirement of software in the future. <laughs> that you could just yeah. use it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because that's been our experience with modern apps, right? Mm. Training. Yeah. Our kids show us how to use these things, for Christ's sake. If they're done well, <laughs> if right? If they're done well, yeah. yeah. Scott Allen. Similar to what Woody was talking about, I think, I'd like to see some shaking out and some stability next year. Um, it, it's not just HTML5 and all the new APIs and Chrome updates every week type of thing, but even, um, you know, Windows 8 is new. There's all sorts of new things coming out. If we could just, uh, get to a point where things are, we know what direction to take. Do I want to do Web API? Do I want to do WCF? I don't know. It's also Don't new. we know the answer to that one already? Yeah, that one, that one's easy. <laughs> we should, but, you know, people, people still ask that all the time. Yeah. So to, to get no, that into the, the mainstream. Um, 
But I also hope that we, we have this conference again, and it's huge, and, and there's more Crown Royal. Yeah. <laughs> more Crown Royal, okay. <laughs> we really haven't, we didn't talk an awful lot about Win8 at all here, much yeah. less the role of the tablet coming into this year. Mm. It does seem like we're still kind of in early days. There's an awful lot of iPads out there, but not <clears> an awful lot of anything else. I, I, so many people, I think, are still hedging their bets, mm -hmm. still yeah. waiting to see if it can happen. However, if you do play with an app on the tablet, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's the key, right? People need to experience it. Yeah. And anybody who touches it says usually good things. I do think. Except I, for that chick that did that video, uh, drunk on right. how to navigate an eye. <laughs> did anybody see that? That was hilarious. <laughs> I, and I am wondering if sometime this year, 2013, some business is going to show how they switch their organization over to tablets and gain this competitive advantage. Right. Mm -hmm. Sort of is going to put a stake in the ground as a jump forward. I don't know how, exactly what that looks like. There's lots of ideas, but it's like there's a group of pioneers out there that are going to pull this off. I think Microsoft is very good at being second. Mm -hmm. I mean, once Excel came along, nobody remembered Lotus One Two Three. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, when my daughter saw the Surface ad, she goes, "That's the iPad I want." Nice. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> wow. Just like you Googled it with Bing. <laughs> it's an iPad that runs Word. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. Well, let's give a great big Dev Intersection round of applause to the panel. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.